Uh, I have been greatly encouraged all throughout this morning, um, especially when I woke up this morning and in my own devotions read this, especially when we will be speaking quite a bit on uh, resurrection today. I read these words in Psalm 30. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. And uh, that is what we celebrate as believers, and uh, that is what uh, we'll be focusing on today. So, uh, <clears throat> when we chose the title for this series on God's heart, um, we had no idea the significance it would take on. Uh, our desire was simply to be encouraged and challenged in preparation for the launch of another ministry year. But the needs that we face and that we anticipated have been dwarfed by our circumstances. Uh, and that's to say the least. I know personally that has been for me. However, one thing has come out of the messages, all of the messages I've heard so far. I've been constantly reminding that God has been leading and providing for his people who are continually faced with overwhelming circumstances throughout the centuries. The Old Testament is nothing but a record of people who are overwhelmed by their circumstances and who are delivered by God. So our Father provides for our needs. We're told he provides every day in the Lord's Prayer. And I would say personally, I've experienced sometimes multiply, multiple times during a day I have received strengthening from him. So each message, we see that God acts on our behalf to redeem a people for himself. And in the New Testament, this is called the good news. And this redemption is provided and completed in Jesus the Messiah. This is the message that is on God's heart. And this is the message I hope we will hear today. It's my prayer that this morning I'll be able to do one thing and one thing only, and that's to hopefully elevate our understanding of the gospel. That we will move in, in the direction of understanding the panoramic expanse of it. That we will leave, to say, a folded and faded passport photo of what the gospel is to an IMAX-style image of what the gospel is. Now, if I can move us slightly down that path, that's all I'm hoping to do. But I'm asking that the Spirit of God would speak to you as he has encouraged my heart in preparation of this message. Let's pray together. Our Father, with joy, we thank you for not dealing with us in a manner that we deserve, but you have been gracious to each of us. We ask for your light so we will be able to see and perceive we ask that our ears may be able to hear and understand your word, and then that by your power and grace, we would be able to do what you are calling us to. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus, the Anointed One. Amen. So what is on God's heart? Or to, I'd like to rephrase the question for this morning. What is the greatest need of the church today? Globally? Corporately and individually, what is the greatest need that the church faces? 
I believe that 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11 answers this question. So read with me, follow along, and if the slides are going, which I can't see them, so I'm just assuming they are, follow along with the slides. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And that then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I really appreciate uh, this passage more and more. The more I study it, the more I appreciate it. Very simple outline. It breaks down verses 1 and 2, the effect of the gospel at Corinth in the believers there. Verses 3 through 8, the gospel, the appearances, and the witnesses. And and particularly, I want to highlight today the origin and content of the gospel and the function of the appearances and witnesses. The effect of the gospel in Paul's life as uh, an illustration for us today, basically. And then finally, the conclusion that Paul makes. One thing we should understand is that if you look in verse 12 of chapter 15, which I don't have a slide for, sorry, um, Paul is answering a question here in the overall argument of the whole chapter. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So the, the whole focus of the chapter is to answer that question. So we have to ask ourselves, so why does he start with talking about the gospel? Okay. Some of you are familiar with a man named Jeff Vanderstilt. I, anybody going to nod your head? Yeah? You know that guy? Yeah. He's a non-staff pastor at Doxa Church in uh, Washington. And he's also a regional elder with a group called Saturate the Sound. It's, a, it's an association of churches that want to reach the Puget Sound area with the gospel. And he writes this, and listen carefully to this, okay? Most people don't believe this, but the greatest need in the church today is the gospel. Not only is it the power of God for salvation, but it is the crux of what forms, sustains, and breathes life into the church and its people. Apart from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection power, conquering sin, Satan, and death, the church has nothing unique to offer. If we 
move away in any way, shape, or form, we will have nothing to offer. Okay? So with that in mind, I want to ask you to keep in mind that question. What is the greatest need in the church today? So let's go back to verses 1 and 2. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Uh, Very interesting. We are going to be looking at patterns, word patterns, phrases that are repeated, words that are repeated, even the order of thoughts that are repeated in this passage. There, There are multiple ones, and some of them even overlap. And so I'm just going to follow that through. I've I've attempted to um, enable you to follow along as you will see lines and phrases underlined on the screen. Okay? So if you see that the word gospel and preached are underlined. Paul wants to begin by reminding... uh, uh, Sorry. (laughs) Uh, I love it. Uh, from, from uh, Thursday to yesterday, I revised this thing three times, and it's still out of order. I don't know what's wrong with my computer. <laughs> you know. The first repetition is not evident in English, but Greek contains it in both sound and meaning. This isn't an accident, folks. This is the way these authors wrote. They are both artistic and they are vitally important for our life. Paul says to them, I preach the gospel to you. Now, most of us, and if not, if you hang around long enough, you will become familiar with the term gospel. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's just good news, right? Jesus rising from the dead is good news to you. Now, we have to go out and fill that in. How is it good news for you? But then Paul goes on to say, I preached. But preached doesn't convey in English what Greek is saying. Paul is saying the word that he uses there is euangelizomai. Gospel, euangelion, is a noun. We're all familiar with noun, right? And how sometimes verbal actions can be the subject of a sentence. We use them as a noun. So gospel is a noun, but euangelizomai is a verb. It means you're engaged in the action of speaking good news, particularly focused on what is the content of that good news and the fact that it is calling you to a response. So that's the first one. But Paul moves on from here, and he wants to remind the Corinthians of their shared experience of the gospel. He continues continues to gospel them, And they are being reminded of what they have heard, what they have accepted, what they are standing upon, and what they are being saved by. So, notice again. Paul uses and is using a specialized form of speech. He is gospeling them. And he wants to focus their attention on the four things related to the gospel, all of which are introduced by the word which. I was going to tell you to watch out for the four witches, but I didn't think it would be appropriate in this setting. Right? So look, he's reminding them, this isn't something new. I preached this to you in the past, and you received it. You have received it, he says. 
Not only that, he says that they are, they are standing on it. It's something that they recognize as being a firm, fixed position that they can rely upon, and they're standing on it right now, right here, right now. So there's the past, there's the present, and then he's looking forward into the future, and he says, by which you are being saved. It is doing something. It is active in you. It is having an effect on you. Paul's not declaring anything new or improved, nothing innovative, no new revelation. He is reminding the Corinthians of the good news they have previously heard. You could say that the old news is still good news. What you heard before is still reliable, it's still current, it's still valid, and it is still powerful. Their attention is directed to the effects of the gospel. They took in the message. They stand on it and operate out of it. And they are being saved by it. I love the way Paul expresses this to the Philippian church. In Philippians 1, 3 through 6, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. You think he's a little bit excited? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Right? The gospel is a firm, fixed point from which we can live our lives and we can be assured that the Lord will complete the work he's begun in us. Now the final words of, the, of verse 2 we need to be careful with. We shouldn't understand them as Paul casting doubt on their faith. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now I want to focus your attention on the word hold fast. This is a pattern in 1 Corinthians that again, unless you read the whole book or large sections of the book at a time, you won't pick up on. Paul has spoken of holding fast earlier in the book in chapter 11. Listen to these words from chapter 11, verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything. Notice remembering is brought into this again. I want to remind you, he says in verse 15. And in verse 11, he says, I want to commend you because you remember me in everything and hold fast the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now notice those two words, traditions and delivered. Okay, <clears throat> And then you, you just drop down in verse 11 to a passage that we are very familiar with. 11 verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And this is the exact same ordering of these thoughts in chapter 15. For what I received, that's what I have delivered. Right? In chapter 11, they're referring to the Lord's table. Here, in chapter 15, they are reminding us of the person and work of Christ. The other thing we should notice, and will come up in my next point, <laughs> is that Paul is pointing to the fact that they are part of a tradition that they did not invent. It was something that they have received. So what Paul has had put into his hands and he has taken into his hands, he is turning around and he is putting into somebody else's hands for them to turn around and then put in somebody else's hands. Okay, it's, a, it's the ongoing life of the church. 
So then we look in verse 3. This same pattern. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now notice, and this is going to become, hopefully it becomes clear. Uh, hopefully this is something I can communicate today. This is the core, the vital core of the message of the gospel. Right in this passage, this is not the total gospel. This is not what I talked about in the intro. This is not the panoramic view of the gospel. We'd be here for an awful long time if I was speaking on the panoramic view of the gospel. As a, fa- as a matter of fact, that would be way beyond my abilities. But it stretches from chapter 3 in Genesis to chapter 22 in Revelation. It's the whole book, folks. It all is one unified story that speaks to Jesus. Gold star to anybody who recognizes who said that, and my community group is excluded from this challenge. Okay? Paul delivered what he received. I want you to notice the intertwining of repeated words and phrases in this section. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If any of you are familiar with patterns in the Psalms, this is called bookending. In accordance with the scriptures focuses us. What is the origin of the gospel? It's in the scriptures. And what are the scriptures that Paul had? Right? But also notice the pattern introduced by that. Much safer word than witches. That Christ died. That he was buried and that he was raised. That, my friends, is the core of the gospel. The resurrection of the dead. So let's take a look at the origin of the gospel. Paul is quite clear. He is not the source of it, nor, nor really we need to understand, nor are the witnesses that he will name the source of the gospel. If you want to find out where the source of the gospel is, all you need to do is do a read through Acts, the book of Acts. Look at the preaching of the early apostles and look at how many times they reference what? The Old Testament. And not just one single part, or they multiple parts. Take a look, for instance, in all the aspects of the gospel that are mentioned, because they're quite desperate, disparate, sorry, not desperate, disparate, different. Um, look at Peter in Acts 10. You know, when he's sharing the gospel for the first time to Gentiles. In fact, not just to Gentiles, but to a representative of the occupying force in Palestine, a centurion, and his family. Peter writes, or sorry, Luke writes, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the anointed, he is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. How many of you would include that in the gospel? Have you ever included that in your presentation of the gospel? You know, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. It's part of the gospel. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 16. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay? Now, you want an even stronger witness of the gospel, which we would not recognize. Look at Stephen. 
Now, Stephen only preached one sermon. And fortunately for most of us who accept for some foolish reason the challenge to speak in front of people, <laughs> we don't die for it. But he did, right? And he covers the whole, almost the whole history of the Israelite people and connects it to being culminated in the person of Jesus. And he writes this at the end. This is his charge against the people who are about to stone him to death. For we have heard him say that, or sorry, this is the charge that they brought against him. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Well, they were right in a certain, certain, in a certain way. But that would mean, by implication, that Stephen was talking about Jesus as though he was alive. Wouldn't it? And the charge against him makes no sense and carries no significance unless it's understood in the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. It's connecting him with the Old Testament. You stiff-necked people, he says, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who raised, received the law and del as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. <clears throat> All of those descriptions, righteous one, right? They come right out of the Old Testament. And then finally, Paul, the, the, who's writing to the Corinthians. You know, it, it's fascinating. In this message, in chapter 13, so this is in Antioch, not the one close to Jerusalem, the one up in Asia Minor, is on, I can't remember what missionary journey, sir, sorry. Um, but this, this is in a synagogue, and Paul quotes or alludes to 11 different books of the Old Testament. He does the same from seven different psalms. This is in one sermon. Why? Because he knows these people know the Old Testament. They know the Hebrew Scriptures. And he writes this, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the, purposes, the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. The origin or the source of the gospel message is clearly and simply in or according to the scriptures. Just as you cannot have water without the combination of hydrogen and oxygen, you cannot have the gospel without the combined testimony of the Old and New Testaments.
The core of the message of the gospel is this. Christ died for our sins. That's what Paul says. Do we recognize that? It's not just for your sin. It's for my sin as well. We are all sinners. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Have we not? That Christ was buried, but his grave is empty. His body did not see corruption. He was raised, and notice that four times that is used. He appeared. What's interesting is that when we look at this, when we look at the one who died for our sins and was declared to be alive, Paul is speaking is what of, is speaking of what is of first importance. It is the core of the gospel. But what's interesting is that in these first 11, ver- first 11 verses, death is only mentioned once. But in the rest of the chapter, death is mentioned 13 times. It's a different word. Thanatos is the Greek word in the first 11 verses. Its focus is upon the separation that death brings, especially as it relates to the divine. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul writes in Ephesians. We are separated from God. We're separated from the promises. We're separated from life. But Christ makes us alive. But it's very interesting. The last 13 uses of the word death or referring to death in this chapter are a totally different word. It's necros. We are probably familiar with necrosis, you know, uh, a localized death of tissue, or maybe necropsy, but because of police detective shows, the more familiar term, autopsy. You, know, you have a body that is lifeless. It has no ability to function. It is dead. And that is Paul's point. At the core of early Christian gospeling was the unthinkable God had taken a dead body, made it come back to life, and had exalted that very person to the right hand of the throne of God. You realize that? The people in the New Testament, in New Testament times, were not ignorant. They knew the the difference between a live person and a dead body. And they buried a dead body, and when they went back to the tomb, that body was gone. It hadn't corrupted, it had been raised. And so Paul's going to go on and use this as the basis to to encourage the Corinthians that Christ has been raised, therefore your resurrection is secure. I don't know if that's good news to you. I hope so. But then it's, how does this good news get out? And that's where we come to, he appeared. And look at to how many appearances there are, multiple appearances, some of whom wrote major sections of the New Testament, some of whom are anonymous, totally. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the Twelve. He appeared to 500 brothers at the same time. He appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. He appeared to all the apostles. 
Last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me. Now, when you look at that list, it raises some really interesting questions. You know? Like, why are apostles mentioned twice? You know? I find that fascinating. He appeared to the 12, to James, and then to all the apostles. Who are all these apostles he's talking about? Why does he say, lastly, he appeared to me? You know, there's a difference between Paul and every other witness. All of the other witnesses walked with Jesus. They heard him speak. They may have ate with him. They may have touched him. Some of them even touched him after his resurrection. But Paul, he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, didn't he? He wasn't around for Jesus' life. Very interesting. Anyway, those kinds of questions I'll leave for someone else who wants to dig deeper, and you can let me know, all right? But this appearance, let's make it clear. This was not a vision of Jesus. These people saw the risen Lord by by virtue of the sight that they had. Just as you see me and I see you, They saw Jesus. Okay? And if you combine the additional testimony from the Gospels, we know that some of these people touched him. They ate with him on at least two occasions. He walked with them. He instructed them from the Old Testament. But all of these appearances of Jesus, they were not apparitions. They were not appearances without material substance. He had a body. Now, obviously, it was not a body like ours, unless some of you can enter buildings without using the door or windows, things like that. Or if, upon your desire, you can ascend up into heaven. But it was a real body nonetheless. So let's move on. What was the effect then of this gospel? So Paul begins, you know, it's, it's interesting, he spends most of the book of Corinthians defending his apostleship, his authority. And then here in these verses, what does he say? Look at the way he describes himself. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here is an enemy of the gospel. But what does he point to? Look at three times mentioned In verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Paul relied completely on the grace of God for his understanding of the gospel, for his internalization of it, and for the work that he entered into because of the gospel. This is made abundantly clear if you look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, through, though I am the very least of all these saints. Notice how he expands it there. 
He's not now the least of all the apostles. He says he's the least of all the saints. Saints, you and me, made holy by Jesus' sacrifice. And it doesn't have to take a very long process as some sections or some people do or suggest. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The effect upon The effect of the gospel upon Paul is not unique. The same effect is evident in all the known witnesses of the Lord's appearances. The effect is the experience of God's grace. And God's grace is the transforming power in anyone it touches. The grace of God transformed Paul from an enemy of the gospel to a proclaimer of the gospel. It transformed Peter from a fearful follower of Jesus to a bold proclaimer of the gospel. The grace of God is what awakens us here today from the dead. It is the reason for the hope we have in the resurrection of our bodies, which will be transformed into a body like Jesus. Not some ethereal being floating in some atmospheric reality somewhere out there, but a physical body designed to live in the immediate presence of God. Do you realize that? In the immediate presence of God. Paul says, so we preached and so you believed. That's the core of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised to life. One more pattern, but we won't cover it today. I mentioned at the beginning that Paul was gospeling us. That's what the word preached in chapter 1. Or chapter 1, in verse 1, says, here at the end, he uses a different word. He uses a word that means to cry out and to proclaim. And it is, describes an official herald, the way people used to get their news. Some of you may have heard a term called kerygma. That's what it is here. It refers to the speech of an official herald sent by the ruler and always with the suggestion of formality, gravity, and authority which must be listened to and obeyed. That's what the gospel is. But notice, I want to close with this. What is on God's heart? It is that we experience his grace that we experience the gospel in our lives, that we are able to declare as his representatives the story of Jesus Christ, that we can tell it in its core so that people know exactly where to start, but that we don't stop there, but that we go on and show that it rests upon the promises in the Old Testament that it covers not only Christ's life and death, burial and resurrection, but his exaltation, his ascension, his gifting of the Holy Spirit to us, 
the coming of his kingdom, his glorious return, the judgment of the living and the dead, and the establishment of the kingdom of God where we will live with him forever. Amen.